good grief. Question everything. lucky to be here with Mirabai Star today. Mirabai Star is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and inner spiritual dialogue. A certified bereavement counselor, Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, was named one of the best of 2019 by Spirituality and Practice. Mirabai is on the 2020 Watkins list of the 100 most spiritually influential living people of the world. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Mirabai, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you in our presence. I'm deeply honored. I've been tracking your work for a long time and I've been deeply moved by what you're up to and, and the offering you make to this world. It's really important. Thank you. I am so excited to have you here today. And just a little background for our listeners. Uh, two stories. One is the first time I met you. And that was at Parliament of the World Religions in Salt Lake City back in 2015. And... I was two weeks out of the psych unit for depression, so I was really not in a great place. And I remember I heard you speak, and it was like a light went off inside of me. And I just had to go up and talk to you afterwards. And I think it's more than just the words you say, it's your presence. There's something deeply sacred and powerful and yet feminine and soft about it. And seeing that all at once, even in my darkness, was healing and so to have you here today is such an honor and the other story is some of our listeners know that we actually did a GoFundMe on this podcast for me to go to your retreat <laughs> so thank you to those folks who helped make that happen and that is how uh, I got to know you better and, and why we're here today so thank you to those listeners and uh, let's dive in shall we? We shall. Thanks for those stories Amy that was very heartwarming. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Well, and, and I'll just share a little bit more because it was after, I don't know if you were on a panel that Amy went to at the parliament, um, but somehow after y'all met, we saw you on the street and Amy was like, Mirabai, Mirabai Star, <laughs> screaming across the street. And you were so like kind and patient and uh, like excited to see Amy, even though you had just seen her previously. And so that's my first memory of your interaction. I played it way cooler than I was feeling. I had shades on and I was like, Mirabai Star, as if I actually knew you and I'd only just met you. So then day I went to another panel and I was like, hey, by the way, that was me yesterday. And you were like, yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> How did you know? Like, you meet hundreds of people. So it, it was very because fun. Because Amy, there's something about you that just completely penetrated all of the boundaries and veils that I used to protect myself and you went straight to my heart whatever you saw in me I saw in you too it was a mutual recognition well thank you Whew. <laughs> trying to take that in that doesn't happen very often I mean it happens all the time and it's also a rare gift yeah well thank you thank you that's an honor so let's let's start with the dark night of the soul because I I'm oh, yeah sure yeah you, you know let's start with some light conversation you know uh, uh, but but that is what I heard you speak out about when I first saw you and that was uh, the first book of yours I read because Caravan of No Despair hadn't quite come out yet so I read uh, your translation of Dark Night of the Soul and what I love is. Uh, you bring so much complexity to this dialogue of Dark Night of the Soul, what it is, what it isn't. And I've heard people say we're having a Dark Night of the Soul culturally right now. And I'm curious what your thoughts, first of all, if you could uh, 
for those of us more secular folks, could you explain the dark night of the soul for us? And then also if the cultural idea applies and and what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, we could easily spend an hour on this. So I'm going to do my best to distill it. Thank you for the question. And it's an important one. And yes, I do feel I agree with with many of the people who are suggesting that we're experiencing a kind of collective dark night or global dark night of the soul right now. So what is that teaching? It comes from St. John of the Cross, the 16th century Spanish mystic. And it's interesting that that was the first book of mine you read was my translation of San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross's classic mystical masterpiece, Dark Night of the Soul, because it was also the first book that I ever did. And it opened the door to all the other books. It, it also is significant that on the day that that book was released into the world. As as you know, my 14-year-old daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. So it was the first of a dozen plus books, but it was also the beginning of a deep personal plunge into radical unknowing, which is the essence of the dark night of the soul. So what the dark night of the soul teaching is really about is not necessarily enduring a difficult time in our lives. It's about those times, and John considers this to be a sign of spiritual maturity, when the ordinary ways we used to access a felt sense of the sacred, like for me, it's chanting. I love chanting kirtan or any kind of sacred chanting, um, deep meditation, uh, reading sacred scriptures in a contemplative way. There are all of these delicious kind of spiritual technologies that have been designed to evoke an experience that is sensory of the sacred like we can feel the juiciness of our divine connection and in a dark night of the soul those feelings dry up he uses the word aridity dryness over and over and a deeper darker experience of the dark night of the soul That doesn't happen to everyone because he says most of us aren't mature enough to handle it. But I think that's just patriarchal bullshit, actually. I think it's our birthright to experience the blessing of this terrible darkness. But the deeper dark night is conceptual. So not only do we no longer have a felt sense of the sacred or access to those feelings, but um, we no longer can even conceive of spiritual stuff. (laughs) The idea of God seems ridiculous. I guess you could call it an existential crisis. Like, what does anything mean anymore? Nothing means anything. What used to matter just doesn't. So he calls the first one the night of sense and the second one the night of spirit. So that's the overall teaching. and And his message about that is when we experience these periods of sensory dryness in our spiritual lives, and deconstruction conceptually, our invitation is to allow it, to be with it, to surrender and yield and allow it to have its way with us and allow ourselves to not know. This is the way that I see it connected to this global pandemic of the COVID-19 virus and how So many of our structures and institutions and the ways that we've organized ourselves culturally are coming undone and they're not propping us up anymore. And a lot of things were already fraying at the edges and and a lot of the seams were already showing, for instance, in institutionalized, organized religions, you know, that churches are no longer drawing people uh, very much, especially millennials like you all. And and there there's a way in which formal religious structures are just like they don't make any sense to a whole new generation of people who nevertheless deeply crave spiritual meaning and spiritual experience. So I think that what's happening right now is that this dismantling is being rapidly accelerated and deeply intensified by the pandemic. And so this experience that many of us have had either personally of the dark night of the soul or in small cells of of community that we belong to is now spreading everywhere 
and people are finding themselves questioning the very foundation of our spiritual lives, which are, of course, entwined with our lives as consumers. And we're questioning capitalism and its connection to spiritual values. And, of course, the domain of you two and so many of us who are listening to you and watching you and tracking you and learning from you, our responsibility as beings who belong to a web of interbeing, of life itself and our responsibility to that web of life. So that's my quick encapsulation of what I perceive to be going on. And it's an ever unfolding reality for me. I have no answers, but I'm very curiously, tenderly paying attention right now. Yes, thank you so much for that. I could listen to you talk all day. It made me think, I was raised Catholic and really fascinated by the saints and the mystics, but I'm not even sure I know how to define a mystic, except for that I want to be one. (laughs) You are one, Amy, and I'm sure you are too, Laura. The more I get to know you, the more I suspect. (laughs) well thank you so i would love to hear how you were pulled into the mystics what uh and what do they have to teach us now in in modern life okay that's a great question and and i think we'll begin by a quick definition of what a mystic is so technically in the the literature of religious studies a mystic is someone who has a direct experience of the divine a personal, direct, intimate experience, rather than something that's mediated through accepted channels, like a priest, for instance. Like You can only have a spiritual experience if a priest delivers it to you. So a mystical experience is a direct, intimate, personal connection with the divine that is usually characterized by love and often takes the form of lover dissolving into beloved, that there is an experience of union between the subject and the object so that the subject-object distinction is completely obliterated (laughs) in that explosion of love or that gentle melting. It doesn't have to be dramatic. In fact, that leads me to the second part, which was the first thing you, you said, like, I don't really know what a mystic is except I want to be one. I think we're all mystics. It is our birthright. It is our gift and our reality in that often on a daily basis, we experience fleeting moments of mystical union. You know, those states where we for a moment forget that we are a separate self and the whole illusion of separation from God or from our source, if you don't like the G word, goes away and we we experience our interconnectedness with all of life. And that's why we can't help when we have those experiences of, of union and of connection with the web of interbeing. We cannot help but have the urge to protect it and to care for it. So our love of all creation And our grief in the face of the suffering of creation is a direct outflowing of our experiences of mystical union with with all of life and the love that arises when those moments of union happen, right? So yes, I think that that's what, what mysticism is. And so mystics like San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, my namesake Mirabai, who was a 16th century Bhakti, ecstatic poet from India, Rumi, Kabir, Rabia, Lala. There are all these wonderful mystic poets that I adore. They all experience this union of love with God as beloved or with the source of all life as love itself. And they couldn't describe it analytically or discursively. That didn't make any sense. So they... Instead, there was this outpouring of poetry, which is all metaphor. It's the finger pointing at the moon, right, that gets those of us who are listening to look to where that finger is pointing, which is really the center of our own being. Yeah, amen. Amen. I'm thinking in these times of great uncertainty and great upheaval that 
many of us are looking for someone to save us or or i guess they're inviting us to to look for this one person that's going to like wrap up all of our concerns and all of this uncertainty and i'm thinking of what you said a second ago about how we're all being invited to be mystics and i feel very similarly about we're all being invited to be leaders in this time and i see us moving forward into new paradigms, uh, like linking hands and moving forward together instead of having one person out front. I guess I'm, I'm trying to, to see how this all fits together in a way that, that oftentimes we're looking for leadership beyond ourselves, like abdicating our own personal responsibilities or we're a little bit scared of our own power. I think we're scared of our own voice and I think it's directly related to our consumeristic culture and capitalism and how we've been told we have agency over time. But I'm really moved by this idea that maybe we can all be leaders. Maybe we can all be mystics. Maybe we can all search for wisdom that's deep within instead of relying on this external source to come and tell us what to do or how to be in these really uncertain times. Singing my song, Laura. (laughs) I'm wondering if that, do you think that comes from the hyper-masculine? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This is a question that I was really excited to ask you about, is to talk a little bit more about how we as individuals, how we as a collective can rebalance this divine masculinity with divine femininity. It seems like for me, from my perspective, my worldview, how I'm coming to this is that Maybe we're in many of these predicaments because the masculine is so egregiously outweighed or or weighing too much, taking up too much space, and we've forgotten how to balance these really beautiful dynamics. And and I'm wondering if you can take some time and talk a little bit more about femininity and the divine feminine and not that all males have to be masculine and all women have to be feminine, which is... uh, something that many of us think until we can understand the complexity that within each of us, there's this balance. I know you're an expert in this field. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what you're thinking of this and how we can evoke more of more balance within our lives. Yeah, there's so much in that complex question. And I'm not an expert in really much of anything. I inhabit lots of different spaces with curiosity and respect, I hope. But I am passionately interested in this subject. And I did write a book called Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, in which I really take this on, these questions, and this question of feminine leadership. So first, I want to address a really important point that you made that we all have, as Jung and many other thinkers have shown us, Marion Whitman, that we all have masculine and feminine inside of us to different degrees and in different expressions. And so when we talk about the feminine, we're speaking about and to the feminine in all beings of all genders, all people of all genders and of no gender identification, who nevertheless recognize this imbalance and wish to remedy it. And so it's going to take a long time, I think, to get come to any kind of rebalancing. And it probably is going to require an overemphasis on feminine values for quite some time. And there are many men who are calling for that also. Like the Dalai Lama has been saying for at least 10 years that Western women will save the world. What he means by Western women is not that they're better or smarter or anything else, but they're the ones who have access to the resources, education and material resources to do something to rebalance this terrible, as you say, egregious imbalance that has been perpetuated by thousands of years of patriarchy. And so, and, and but other teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh um, says, the next Buddha will be the Sangha. So for those of you who are not familiar with Buddhist language, the three jewels of Buddhism, or the triple gem, is taking refuge. It's the refuge vow. And you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. To take refuge in the Buddha is to look to the life of the Buddha as an example of an awakened life. To look to the Dharma is to really study the teachings of the Buddha, the, the sutras, the Dharma, the teachings the wisdom, the body of wisdom. And to take refuge in the Sangha is to gather with other practitioners 
ourselves on a path of awakening and service and look to each other in some ways to guide our way. So Thich Nhat Hanh said, it, we're, you know, Buddhism has just like Christianity, an idea of a second coming traditionally. The, the Christ is going to come and save us all. Come again. Or in, in Judaism, the Messiah is coming. In Islam, it's, it's uh, the Mehdi. Uh, in Buddhism, it's Maitreya, this this second kind of coming of, of the great dude that's going to fix it all for us. And I think many of us, as a Jew, I recognize that the Messiah is not a single white dude with power who's going to come and make it all okay again. It's It's all of us. The Messiah is a collective reality. So I think a lot of us are recognizing that right now. And you're absolutely right. The feminine hasn't known this all along, <laughs> has never for a second suspected that we're going to be saved by some singular prophetic creature. I think what you're, what you're evoking in my heart is that if we lead with feminine values of interconnection and respect for one another's voices, knowing that each of us has something special to bring to the table, then we are going to experience not only a collective awakening, but we will discover what leadership looks like in an entirely new and radically effective way. I don't think it's an accident that many of our teachers are dying right now or have died recently, like the great cultural icons of our times. Ramdas, my beloved lifelong teacher, just died a few months ago and, and he, everything that I think and, and teach in men in so many ways is influenced by him. He formulated my entire consciousness because I was with him at such a young age, you know, in my teens, early teens. And he was a figurehead, you know, people looked to Ramdas for guidance and for like how to do it, even though he kept denying that he was an awakened being every chance he got, like, I'm just a schmo doing my best. But there, Thomas, Father Thomas Keating, of the center, who offered us centering prayer and so many beautiful teachings, Reb Zalman in the Jewish tradition, there are all of these great male teachers who are leaving or who have left this world and that wave is receding and this new landscape is emerging that I think is going to be and already is much more um, connected and relational and horizontal and not patriarchal and top down anymore. And that is the feminine. That is the feminine form of leadership emerging among us. Uh, and, and it's a heart based leadership and it's an embodied leadership. Yeah, thank you for that. And I still can't imagine what it was like to be a teenager following Ram Dawes. You had a pretty wild upbringing that I think is hard for like small town Michigan folks like us to relate to in the sense that like, I did I remember reading that you babysat at party like Dennis Hopper's parties or something really wild like that in addition to following Ram Dawes? Like how did you have such a rich childhood? That's an that's an obscure factoid you retained there. Yes, I did. I I babysat for the Hopper Hopper kids. Um, yeah. So what happened was that in the in the late '60s, my parents became radicalized by the Vietnam War, and they had already been involved in civil the civil rights movement at that point. But they really became deeply engaged. And interestingly, considering you, what you guys are up to here, it was grief that truly catapulted them. I would say into the counterculture and onto a path of alternative lifestyle, and that resulted in uprooting us from our suburban Long Island secular Jewish world. And we went on an odyssey. This was 1972. And a lot of hippie families were doing that at that point, you know, traveling around the, the U.S. And, and Europe and in our case, Mexico, and looking for an alternative lifestyle that, that wasn't driven by the, the norms that, that they'd grown up with, like the nuclear family, for instance. Even that concept felt rigid and and. Um, irrelevant to my parents. And so we lived communally and we lived in voluntary simplicity, um, which I would call poverty. <laughs> and 
that, you know, they gave it all up and we lived without running water and electricity and growing our own food and, and living with people and no TV and, you know, making music. And it was, it was that kind of lifestyle. It was the back to the land movement, all of that. We ended up, after a year of traveling, mostly living in Mexico, we ended up in the mountains of Taos, New Mexico, northern New Mexico, up in um, high in the Sangre de Cristos and near Lama Foundation where Ramdas had created Be Here Now in community. And um, so that community ended up taking over the hippie free school that my siblings and I went to, the alternative school. And, and so we were exposed to many of the teachers who came through Lama Foundation and teachings of all spiritual traditions. That's how I got my name, Mirabai. We did a, a, a musical about the story of the life of the 16th century ecstatic poet Mirabai, who was in love with Lord Krishna. And um, we wrote the music and the dances and the lyric, you know, the lines to the play. And that was a huge turning point. I, I played Mirabai. I was the cast as Mirabai. And that was a big um, turning point in, in my life. Ramdas gave me that name after the play. And the play, and here's another point of, of connection with you all, is that play that I did when I was 13. Um, actually, I was just 14. I just, it was right after my 14th birthday. My um, my first love, my first boyfriend, Philip, had just been killed in a gun accident right before we performed this play. And so my experience of really being inhabited by Mirabai had to do with the fact that my heart was broken and broken open. And maybe that's what connects most with what with what you two are up to and all your your listeners and your followers is that we know that grief and loss become a portal to spiritual transformation. And especially if we can give it our assent, our consent, which is hard to do when we're heartbroken. But if we can soften into as John of the Cross invites us with this dark night of the soul teaching, if we can soften into this state of radical unknowing and allow ourselves to like let down into the arms of the fire, let it have its way with us, we can emerge into a much more spacious container that it gives us the capacity to hold this impossible grief that so many of us carry through our personal losses and through our heartbreak in the face of what's happening to our mother, the earth. So it's not by using our spiritual practices to check out of our experience, to get away from our experience, right? The, the wonderful term spiritual bypass, but allowing ourselves as you all so beautifully teach us to fully show up for the experience of heartbreak that we're able to bear the unbearable and be a source of equanimity and kindness and tenderness to others so beautiful and i'm i'm so moved by your story of your early loss in the formation i had a loss about the same time and it i didn't have any external supports um i come from a lot of trauma and abusive parents and i had this loss coupled against no support and sort of floundering. And I did let it harden me. I didn't open to it. I didn't have the capacity to really let it in. Uh, it was earth shattering on so many levels. And I was left with so many questions of like, why has my world stopped and everyone else's keeps going? I was a seeker before that, but that really led me into seeking, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? I became a religion major in school as sort of a quest to kind of start uncovering why we're even here to begin with. And, you know, it wasn't really until I started spending time with Amy that I started inviting the healing process and inviting feeling back into being alive. And I, w I wouldn't say wasted. That's the term that comes to mind. I wasted something like six or seven years blocking against grief and rage and all the feelings that accompany a really heartbreaking loss. And so, uh, you know, I'm really new to this world of feeling and connection and trying to come back into life 
and come back into connection. And I think that over the last decade, I am relatively young, so I don't have a lot of time to compare it against. But, you know, the last decade of being alive has proven that exactly what you said, right? If we allow ourselves to be transmuted by these processes that we think might kill us, if we lean into them and, and let them transform us, if we feel these losses, whether they're personal or collective, there's so much growth that can happen, so much perspective that can be changed. I'm, I'm so cognizant that without leaning into these feelings, without leaning into these losses, and instead putting up these walls, I don't think we can find solutions for how to navigate this really precarious planetary moment. Like It's through being etched by that fire of grief and loss and pain that the the transformation will happen. And so not just this conversation between the three of us, but like, this is our bigger invitation to lean into that fire to really feel the transformation that's wanting to happen so that we can go forward with new ideas of connection and meaning making that hold the hope or, or at least hold my hope for what the future can look like moving forward. I've lived a life that was really blocked. I've lived a life that was purposely not met with connection. And that is not a fruitful way of living. It, it kills you from the inside. And the real aliveness for me has happened through facing the traumas and facing those, those deep losses. And I think you do a really great job of explaining it. You're very articulate in, in your books and your talks right here now in this conversation with us that, you know, this is the task of this time is to lean into those really painful and uncomfortable feelings and it won't kill us. We can have the support of other people who have been through losses. We don't have to do this alone. In fact, we shouldn't do this alone. Yeah, we can't do it alone. Oh, so beautiful, Laura. So for, first, I just want to say I'm so sorry for the pain that you have had to endure in your life, the terrible trauma and suffering. So that's the first thing. The other thing I want to address is that last thing that we not only do we not have to do it alone, we cannot do it alone. We can only heal in community, I believe. And many of us feel isolated, like we don't, especially right now during this, this global pandemic, but community is, is available everywhere. I mean, the online spaces have been a beautiful example of that, although we can overdo that. And when we talk about self-care in a moment, <laughs> I'll say something about that. But the other thing I want to say is that it does kill us to actually allow ourselves to surrender to grief and loss. And there is a dying that happens when we grieve deeply. And that the mystics of all traditions invite us to die that way, to die before you die, it says in the, in the Quran, in Islam, and in many other spiritual traditions, as you know. And so it's not going to kill you in the way you're speaking of. It's going to bring life. It's going to enliven, as you said, us to be able to actually show up for the full experience, what um, Zorba the Greek, Greek called the, the full catastrophe. But there is something that, is, that dies when someone we love dies or when some cherished uh, structure collapses. And often we are liberated in in the very process of of letting go of that which we love and that to which we were so deeply attached i wouldn't wish that on anybody but it does seem to to work that way well and what i keep thinking of is i just can't recommend your memoir caravan of no despair enough for people and when i have a friend in deep grief or newly in deep grief i often give them a copy because what I love about it is you were no stranger to grief before your daughter died. Right. And you had been walking this spiritual path. And then you write in the memoir about how all of that fell away while grieving the death of your daughter and the honesty in which you do that and the grit that you bring to it is healing. It's powerful. And uh, it's what I love about you. that You're uh, small in size but your your presence is huge it, it it fills a room of hundreds of people at uh parliament of the world religions i got to witness that and the inner strength that you show up with is 
amazing. And it's clear when we read your memoir how it comes from deep grief, I assume. Would, is that fair to say, or would you say that's where your strength comes from? Oh, thank you, Amy, for, for those sweet reflections. Oh, yes. I, in fact, I forgot to mention when I was saying that my parents were catapulted out of our suburban little bubble through grief. Did I mention that my 10-year-old brother died? Uh, that same and I'm glad you right. did. I was going to if you didn't bring it up. Yeah, yeah. So um, so the, the loss of my boyfriend, Philip, at 14 was definitely not my first major loss. When we left New York during that time of the anti-war movement and all of that and countercultural movement. It was also, I think the final straw, because my parents had been kind of going on that path for a while, going down that road for a while. But what really finally uprooted us was the death of my brother, Maddie. He died when he was 10 of a brain tumor. I was uh, seven. It was a few years before we left New York, but that was the beginning of of the end of any semblance of normalcy or conventionality in our lives. So yes, I have had a life that has been marked by many losses. I mean, I can't even name the number of people I've loved who have died. It's just, the list is long, but the big, the biggest ones were definitely my brother when I was seven, my boyfriend when I was 14 and my daughter when I was um, 40. Yeah. So strong, I don't know about strong, but um, menopause helps too. <laughs> like I've gotten to this point in my life where I just won't put up with bullshit anymore. Like the things <laughs> that I used to beg for, the crumbs, you know, of recognition from perceived authority figures, for instance. It just, I am not, I am not wasting an iota of energy anymore, wanting to be affirmed by the patriarchy. And it turns out that uh, there are so many of us. It's younger women who are my teachers now, people like like the two of you, who I am looking to to guide our, our way, who are just this wellspring of unending insight and, and loving kindness and intelligence and fierce truth-telling. Thank you. Thank you so much. I heard... Someone, one of your young women friends that I don't know, so I can't remember the name of who it was, said that you're like the fairy godmother for us baby contemplatives. And that's <laughs> so true, because uh, after meeting you, it, it does free something in us. I think the patriarchy, having someone who's lived longer under these oppressive systems, who has found her way and found her power, it empowers me. I feel safer when I'm with you. I feel braver when I'm with you. And I know mm -hmm. that's true of the other young women I've heard speak about you as well. So thank you. Thank you, Amy. And I think that what I would want to convey, um, by the way, I love that, the fairy godmother to the baby contemplatives. <laughs> that's so good. Um, what I'd want to convey to all of you is that, and I said it before, I want to just reiterate, we each have our particular offering for the for the world in these times mine happens to be with words writing stuff and speaking um, and translating not just literally from spanish to english but um or middle english to contemporary english in the case of translating julian of norwich's um showings revelations of divine love but you know translating the religious insights of the, the various world's spiritual traditions into some kind of accessible way, English. Um, but yours, each of yours who are listening right now is going, your offering is going to be completely aligned with what you love. Like it doesn't have to hurt to be of service in this world. I don't think it's supposed to. That's a patriarchal message that you have to go into the desert and suffer and then bring back your hard-earned vision to, to foist upon the world, whether they like it or not. <laughs> it's, you know, our particular, each of our prophetic tasks, our way of engaging in tikkun olam, the Hebrew word for mending the torn world, is, is going to be aligned with our joy, with what's life-giving for us. You know, it might be making tamales. It doesn't have to look like chaining yourself to the gates of the Pentagon and pouring blood, your own blood on, on draft dot or missile silos or whatever. I'm mixing a lot of activist actions there, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely. I feel this so strongly. I, I, 
like that is a fundamental truth you have just given us. And I, I'm going to reflect on that and have been reflecting on it. And the thing that is coming to mind when you're speaking about this is some of us, I know for Amy and me, this is true, is we're also simultaneously trying to pursue our passions and our loves and where we can start to unweave these threads that have gotten us to these places. But, but oftentimes we can be really afraid of our voice as well. To take a stand on something means that we're going to elicit criticism. And sometimes that's really painful to hear, uh, to have coming back to us. And I'd like for you to speak about that. But I also want to say that part of the problem in why many of us are afraid to take a stance, even if it's for something that we love and we think that contributes healing to the world, is because somehow we've got it in our minds that these leaders are perfect and that we need to be perfect. And if we make an yeah. error, that we don't have any room to express ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, like this idea that we have to somehow be perfect and like further than human, like above humanity to be able to speak out against something or to be able to follow our passions. Mm. Yeah, such an important point. And it definitely is the conditioning that we've all received, men, women, and people of all genders from this masculine paradigm that we've inherited that emphasizes, for instance, in all the spiritual traditions, as you well know, Laura, there's, there's this emphasis on transcendence, like seeing this world as an illusion, the body as this impure obstacle that all needs to be transcended by virtue of our devotion and engagement in, in various spiritual rituals and, and that this is all predicated on the, on the, the, the illusion that we are impure, imperfect beings and we have to earn our way into this unreal state. So the feminine invites us to fully inhabit ourselves as we are with tenderness, with, with humor, you know, with a big dash of salt. Like when you were saying, speaking out, sometimes you will elicit criticism. I certainly have with a lot of this this work that I'm doing with the, the women, women's wisdom across the spiritual traditions, not nearly as much as I actually anticipated, by the way, but, but some. And I've always been super sensitive. I'm the kind of person that a hundred people could line up and tell me how wonderful I am. And if one person says, eh, that I will just, that's all that I can see and feel. Like on my, all my Amazon reviews, I will look for the one review that's negative, and then I will mull that over for days. And even though often, like you, if you look on my Amazon reviews, like there was one for Wild Mercy, it said, I was enjoying this until she went on a political diatribe. And it's like, what does that have to do with religion and spirituality? So this book is not worth reading. Gave it one star. And I was like, yay, I, that's a great negative review. <laughs> that reinforces everything I want people to know about me. <laughs> because there's no separation between the political and the spiritual. So... It's this illusion that the body is this impure obstacle to be transcended and that this world is an illusion to wake up from, that all the religions, Eastern, Western, and everything in between, tell us, except maybe the indigenous traditions who don't tell us that, that has caused uh, so much so much sorrow. And I think that it's the wounded healers that are the true healers. It's the, the reluctant prophets whose voice we really need, the ones who say, who me, those are the ones I trust. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before we close out with a check-in of self-care, I also wanted to give a shout-out to Patrick Hidalgo and his family. His, I would not have known, had the pleasure of knowing him without you, and he was such a gift in this world, and his Sudden death is heartbreaking, and he was supposed to be a guest on this podcast. Oh, he was. Yeah. So uh, while we're here together, I just wanted to say his name out loud. I was lucky enough to know him from you, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm, Yes. Thank you, Amy. Patrick Hidalgo, who died tragically at the age of, of 40 just a few weeks ago. Thank you. Thank you. Loved him, too. In this time of great grief, especially with coronavirus, and I think that we'll see a lot more uncertainty and unpredictability and loss. And I'm wondering if you have any 
tools or techniques or practices that you use to prioritize your self-care as the rugs keep getting pulled out from under us? How are you caring for yourself? Oh, good question. And and by the way, just a quick aside. So a few days ago, a couple of days ago on my birthday, my friend Kate died of lung disease and she's in wild mercy. So for those of you who are interested, I want to honor Kate Nelson also today. She's in the section called, I will be Demeter and you be Persephone. Because she also, Kate also lost a child. So what am I doing for self-care? Okay. It's, it's like an imper- imperative in my soul. It's not something I'm suggesting to myself as a nice thing to do. Right now, what I'm noticing is at the same time that I'm celebrating the extraordinary community and intimacy that's unfolding in online spaces, like it's just this this wonderful experience of love and connection that I'm seeing in so many places that I've gotten to participate in. I'm also finding that I hit a wall very quickly with these virtual spaces and with the internet. And so I limit it. And I'm also at a place in my life, different people are in different life stages where I'm getting asked constantly to do stuff. So it used to be to traveling. And since the coronavirus, it's just been a nonstop barrage of, you know, will you speak to this group and will you, you know, give us some, it's that, it's that urge you were talking about, Laura, of people looking for someone to have the answers for us right now. And at first, like in the first few weeks, I was saying yes to everything. And now I'm harvesting <laughs> those seeds and, and just trying to, to weed that garden. But I am saying no thank you to almost everything and putting my energy into things that I think might actually make some difference. And, and even if the others seem prestigious or if they pay well, you know, I'd rather live even more simply than I already do and not sell myself for some false sense of comfort or security right now. I am walking in, well, I have the, the great privilege of living in the edge of national forest here in Taos, but I'm walking every day with my dogs. I'm making beautiful, healthy meals with my beloved. I am sleeping more. I am reading good literary fiction, which fills my cup and poetry and I'm doing much longer practices than I, like I used to do my quick drive-by morning practices, of, you know, a few sun salutations and 10 minutes of silent sitting. Now I'm luxuriating in yoga practice and meditation practice. I'm playing the flute again, a bamboo flute. I'm playing the guitar again. I'm drawing and listening to podcasts. These are things I didn't give myself a chance to do before. And I'm being gentle and kind with myself. If I just can't keep showing up, I just go away and, and it's okay. And it makes everything else so much richer and deeper when I'm able to. And I know I have the privilege of, of making those choices right now, but I'm not using my privilege as a bludgeon to beat myself up. I'm using it as an opportunity to cultivate some space of equanimity and joy that I can offer the world going forward. Thank God for that. That's <laughs> profound. Thank you for sharing your stories with us. Your, your grace and your vulnerability have been a true gift. And I'm grateful that you brought up the name of your friend that you lost and, and your friend, your communal friend. Mm-hmm. These people are beautiful ways that we can keep honoring them, right? If we bring them up in conversation and and remind ourselves of them and create some spaces for for their memory. And I'm grateful that you have taken the time, both of you, to enter in the names of people who who are meaningful and who are no longer with us. And I'm glad you connected the section in Wild Mercy with your friend who just passed away. I'm going to read that with that understanding. Thank you. It's the Kates are there. So right after the, I will be Demeter and you will be Persephone. The sub section is the Kates. And she was one of the two Kates. Well, oh yes. And our, our loved ones who die, I feel really strongly become our ancestors and they guide our steps, you know, no matter how wise or unwise they may have been in, in life, they become these wisdom beings that, 
sustain us and show us the way when we call on them. So I really, truly believe that and live by that. Thank you so much. Mirabai, you are an inspiration. You are a comfort and a blessing. And the fact that you would come on the show means the world to me. So thank you so much. Oh, Amy, you are so dear to me. And now your beloved is also. Thank you, Laura. For it's pretty great. <laughs> thank you. Pretty great for your great wisdom and insight. And the, the two hearts, your two hearts are guiding us in huge ways. And thank you for that. And, and please just continue to do what you need to do to care for yourselves and reconnect with your joy because we, we need your joy going forward. Thank you for listening to this fruitful conversation with Mirabai Starr. We'll end with her reading a passage from her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. Modern Western culture conditions us to step away from that precipice, um, about the precipice of heartbreak as quickly as possible. We're conditioned to see death and painful longing as problems to be solved rather than as sacred landscapes to be revered. We are encouraged to medicate our grief, to treat loss as a malfunction that needs troubleshooting, to satisfy our longing as swiftly as possible. We may feel obliged to employ any of dozens of spiritual methods from meditating ourselves into a trance to conjuring up the power of positive thinking in order to bypass our direct experiences. We buy into some bullshit notion of the law of attraction, which asserts that difficult life experiences are the result of faulty beliefs, and that if we simply focus on what we want, the universe will fall into place to meet our every need and grant our every wish. From this perspective, we can't help but consider loss and longing as cruel and unruly, judging ourselves to be doing something wrong when we fail to get away from the pain. Believe me, I'm not a fan of tragic loss. I hate that my beautiful, blossoming 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, crashed my car and died. It hasn't been easy to witness loved ones suffering mightily as cancer ravaged their bodies, trapping them in its clutches and not letting them go until there was nothing left of them. I am a peace activist. I vigorously oppose the culture of death that manifests in the form of war. I embrace all that is life-affirming. Poetry, art, healthy food, connection with nature, community. But with this kind of messaging that pathologizes death and loss, of course many of us are going to mistake the fire of grief or longing for that which we cannot have or can no longer have, for problems to be resolved rather than as evidence of our holy membership in the human condition and an invitation to spiritual transformation. By transformation, I do not mean transcendence, as you may have guessed by now. I mean the opposite of rising above the realities of the world. Rather, it's about becoming so fully present that the line between sacred and ordinary is obliterated and the face of the beloved shines from every face, humans, bees, juniper trees. We'd like to give a special thanks to Andrea Taylor, Ken Winter, Michael Rezel, Dean LeCoe, Diana Vanderdoes, and Josh Swenson. Thank you for listening to Why, a Good Grief Network podcast with Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. A special thank you to all of our patrons who donate money every month so that we can continue to build the Good Grief Network. If you're interested in becoming a patron or donor, please visit our website at goodgriefnetwork.org. Oh.